0: turn to Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 25. And as you're turning there, if you've been with us uh, throughout the month of January, you might be curious as to why we're turning to Genesis, and if you're really paying attention and you've been, this isn't your first time at Grace, you're not visiting, you might have noticed that the bulletin has Obadiah still on the cover, and that might have struck you as odd because we finished Obadiah last week. We read and considered, yes, the Lord's final word to the man named Obadiah. The man named Obadiah who gave a word to a dejected Judah and overconfident Edom. But we're not closing the book on this minor prophet just yet. As you're turning to Genesis 25, there's still one more important insight for us to take away from this scene that we've been given in Obadiah. Now, I don't know if you caught it. I didn't really call it out or point to it. But as we worked through this this brief little book of Obadiah, you might have noticed in his prophecy, there are several references again and again to Jacob and Esau. And these two names, Jacob and Esau in Obadiah, are representative of the two nations addressed in the book. Jacob representing Judah, Esau representing Edom. However, what I want you to understand is their names are invoked by Obadiah as more than just placeholders. No, their mention again and again is intended to remind us that the animosity between Israel, Israel and Edom had a long history. As we, through the month of January, went through that book, everything that happened in Judah and all that Obadiah prophesized will ultimately take place on the day of the Lord stems, in other words, from an ancient family feud. Now, we've all heard stories of families divided by a quarrel or a dispute. Maybe we've even experienced, or God forbid, are currently experiencing that kind of tension within our own family. The story of Jacob and Esau, however, stands apart from the rest. It stands apart because their story reveals just how far things can go, just how bad things can get, how an unresolved fight between two brothers can eventually evolve into two nations at war with each other. And so in this last sermon on the, the book of Obadiah, I want to define one final insight. I want you to, help you to help you to see one final challenge for us that the Bible gives us. And I need to do that through the telling of their story, Jacob and Esau's story. So you've turned to Genesis. We'll read it in a second. But we turn to Genesis because in order to hear the story of Jacob, we have to go back to the beginning, to where everything started, to Genesis. And, and the truth is, Jacob and Esau's story, in fact, starts with their grandfather, Abraham. Abraham. God made a covenant promise to Abraham telling him through you, you, all the nations, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. On the basis of grace alone, the Lord selects Abraham and his heirs, his descendants, to be the family through which the salvation of the world would come, through whom the Messiah, the one who is the savior of all creation, would be born. And Abraham had a son, Isaac. And Abraham's son, Isaac, who became the covenant bearer, married Rebekah. And interestingly, Rebekah, just like Isaac's mom, Sarah, Rebekah at first was unable to have children. And so Isaac pleaded with God for a child. And when he was 60, Rebekah conceived. And to lead us into this story, when Rebekah was pregnant, she felt something more than the normal movements of a baby in her womb. In fact, it was so much it caused Rebekah to ask, quite plainly what's up with this and I won't ask how many of you who have born a child have asked God at some point in your pregnancy what's up with this and in response to Rebecca's question he revealed to her she would give birth to not one but two children two fraternal twin boys in her womb however God's revelation didn't stop there the Lord told her two nations are in your womb two peoples shall be separated from your body one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger and with that lead in if you have genesis chapter 25 open let us read about the arrival of these two brothers of Jacob and Esau we're going to start in verse 24 genesis reads when the time came for her to give birth there were twin boys in her womb the first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is also why he was called Edom. (laughs) Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first, So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, this is a different kind of sermon today where we're, we're, we're going to be uh, moving around a little bit and trying to give you the fullness of this story not, and not being tied so much just to the particularities of this text, though I will be pointing to particular things for you this morning. Okay, let's dig in. Esau and Jacob are born, right? Esau first and then you heard Jacob <laughs> right after. Now the thing is, only one of them can be the next generation's covenant bearer. And in the culture of Abraham and Isaac's day, the blessing and responsibility of carrying the mantle of such a covenant belonged to the firstborn son of a given generation. But as you heard, in Esau and Jacob's case, the Lord has already stated other plans. God's will is for Jacob to be the bearer of the covenant promise. Now, it's very important, a couple of things we understand here. Understand this selection has nothing to do with Jacob. It has nothing to do with his character or his potential. And trust me, that's going to become clear very quickly. No, the Lord makes his selection of Jacob on the basis of his grace. The selection of Jacob as the covenant bearer has everything to do with God's sovereign purposes and nothing to do with Jacob's character or potential. Furthermore, very important you also understand, we understand this selection has nothing to do with Esau's eternal salvation per se. This covenant promise, as you heard at the start when it's first given to Abraham and passed on, this covenant promise is intended to be available for all persons. Both boys growing into their manhood had the opportunity to love the Lord their God and to be blessed by God. And yet... Despite all of this, despite the Lord's clear instructions and stated purposes, if you know this story and if you don't I'm going to share it with you, despite the Lord's clear instruction and stated purposes, everyone in this family still tries to do their own thing. <coughs> Jacob, whose very name means deceitful. You heard this. He plots to take what is already his. When his brother Esau is hungry after a long day of hunting, Jacob offers him the food he has prepared in exchange for the birthright. Appreciate this. Jacob manipulates his brother in order to get what God has already given him, given Jacob. Esau, on the other hand, as you heard, demonstrates no interest or respect in the Lord's covenant promise that comes through his family. Ruled by his appetite, Esau shows little regard for his role as the firstborn son. You heard it, without batting an eye, he gives up his entire inheritance on the spot. In fact, we're told Esau got his nickname Edom from the incident with the stew. He told Jacob, give me a bowl of that red stuff. And the thing is, the red stuff in Hebrew is Edom. Now, you might step back and wonder why all this happens. Why does all this go down? Because again, the Lord from the outset makes it clear, his intentions. And if you're asking why does this all happen, we need look no further than Jacob and Esau's parents. As verse 28 spells out in in what we did read, verse 28 spells out Isaac and Rebekah have their favorites between the boys. Isaac favors his rough and tumble son Esau while Rebecca dotes more on Jacob, the homebody. And out of this favoritism, if we skip ahead to chapter 27, the next big movement in this story, out of this favoritism, as chapter 27 makes clear in Genesis, Isaac intends in his old age to give the family blessing to Esau despite what God has previously laid out. And on the other side, out of this favoritism, Rebecca spurs her, her younger son Jacob, her favorite, to trick his father and once again take from his brother Esau the blessing that the Lord has already promised to him, to Jacob. Now, I talked about the story two weeks ago briefly, but if you don't remember, in the end, God's will and covenant purposes prevail. God's will and covenant purposes prevail, but what I want you to remember or hear for the first time is that even though God's will and covenant purposes prevail, just as he said, it comes with a lot of collateral damage due to all the parental favoritism and the scheming among the siblings. I want you to imagine the picture that we're left with at the end of chapter 27, that in the midst of God doing what he said he was going to do from the beginning, and yet people doing their own thing, this is the picture that we're left with. We're left with a picture of poor old blind Isaac violently trembling, the scriptures tell us, violently trembling as he is unable to deliver what he wrongly promised to Esau. And Esau laments over his situation. He literally cries out in pain. And Esau's lament over his situation quickly becomes a vendetta toward his twin brother Jacob as he plots his murder once his father passes. And then there's misguided and manipulating Rebekah, who literally in the midst of what she's doing calls down curses on herself and then has to watch her family come apart as she has to send one of her children, Jacob, away in order to, as she says, not lose both of her sons in one day. And then there's Jacob, the bearer of the covenant promise, the one who's supposed to unite all the children of God, the one who manipulated and deceived in order to get what was already his. He suddenly finds himself kicked out of the house, separated from his mom and dad, divorced from his brother, and on the run for his life. My point in taking us back to this story, my point in hashing all this out is I want us to see that I think we can relate to Obadiah on a much more intimate and communal level than we might have realized. I mean, we can all relate to the root issues when we go back to the beginning, the root issues that are here, can't we? We can all relate, can't we, to holding on to a long-standing grudge that we have against someone else? We can all relate to our relationship with another person being compromised by an ongoing dispute. We can all relate in some way of being divided among ourselves, of being unable, maybe even unwilling to reconcile. The final insight that I want this series on Obadiah to reveal to us, the the challenge that I want us to see is the challenge of unforgiveness in our life. Esau and Jacob's story of sibling rivalry and fraternal conflict is not unique. The names and the circumstances might be different, but don't we all have a strained, a broken, maybe even a hostile division within our families, within our circle of relationships? Oh, we remember the insult, don't we? We remember the betrayal. We remember the lie. We remember the offense. Oh, we remember it well. We complain, we lament, we fume, we boil over, we pass on to anyone who will listen. We hold on to every detail of what was said, of how it went down. The bitterness festers, the resentment grows. It defines the line between us. Do You you don't understand that line? You don't see it? Well, let me tell you why that line is there. Let me tell you about that wall. It builds, it reinforces the divide that keeps us separated, even as the cancer of our anger spreads. As gradually, explicitly, we just put it right out there, or implicitly, we infer, we can force people to choose sides. It's either me or them. You're with me or you're with them. If you're with them, then you're not with me. It gradually, implicitly, Subtly or explicitly, we put it right out there. We pass on our dislike, our nastiness, our hatred from one generation to the next. Now, if you know this story of Jacob and Esau, and if you're remembering it even, you might recall how many years later Jacob returned from his self-imposed exile, encountered Esau, and the two brothers appeared to reconcile. It's in Genesis chapter 33, and I would love to say that, yep, they reconciled, and it was one big happy family again. But it just ain't so. It just ain't so, because there's more chapters in the story, and it doesn't take long. Right in chapter 36 in the book of Genesis, you can go and read it later, we read, even though they seem to have reconciled, about Esau's relocation to an area south of the Dead Sea called Mount Seir away from the presence of his brother. This is the place where we ultimately find the Edomites. The implication in chapter 36 of Genesis of Esau moving out is he didn't move out because he wanted to. He moved out because the country he had lived in all of his life now belonged to Jacob. And there was not enough room for both of them. So in other words, to bring this down to earth, I want you to picture this one day. Esau one day went to his mailbox one morning and he pulled out an eviction notice. And it was from his younger brother, Jacob. My friends, there's a tension here in that the two brothers couldn't live together. That one brother was forced to move from his homeland to a land that one day he would die in that was a foreign land. And this surface level tension that I'm pointing to in Genesis is reinforced by what transpires between the descendants of Esau and Jacob, the children who become the nations of Israel and Edom, respectively. Esau's unresolved bitterness and Jacob's unconfessed deception continue to play out through these nations of the two brothers, who now are next door neighbors. Both, and, and what we see in, in the history that follows leading all the way up to Obadiah, is both Edom and Israel would act neither neighborly nor brotherly towards each other. The first incident occurs, in fact, much, much later, soon after the children come out of their exodus from Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness, and the Israelites come to Edom, and they request to be allowed to pass through the land of Edom. Without touching any of their crops or vineyards, not so much as drawing water from their wells, Moses in this, in this scene addresses the Edomites as brothers. But the king of Edom refuses his request. In fact, the king of Edom tells Moses, if you dare pass through Edom, my army will come against you with the sword. And the Edomites in this scene even flex their muscles a little bit by coming out in battle ranks to show Israel they mean what they say. Talk about a lukewarm family reunion. This is happening over 400 years, people, four centuries after Jacob and Esau parted ways. 400 years later, Esau's unforgiveness still lingers. And it's interesting because in response to all this in Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Lord tells Israel, don't hate your brothers. And yet the hostilities continue between these two nations for centuries more. There'd be lots of warring back and forth between the kings of Israel and Edom. So many retaliations, so many foreign alliances to get the upper hand on the other. So many lives were lost, so many children sacrificed until it all finally came to a head as Edom, as through Edom the older brother Esau first turns away, later rejoices, and then worst of all, joined in the destruction, humiliation, and shame of his younger younger brother Jacob as represented by the nation of Judah. My friends, do you get it? This was no minor family feud. What started off coming out of the womb, grasping at the other heel that grew into trickery over a bowl of stew eventually boiled over into a cauldron of hate between two brothers that was passed down to the countries bearing their names. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel refers to this whole thing. He calls it an ancient hatred. My friends, This kind of ancient hatred, the fruit born here, the fruit that eventually comes to harvest from the seed of unforgiveness sown in a relationship, that ancient hatred is still alive and well today. I'm not just talking about Jacob and Esau anymore. When I'm talking about this ancient hatred, what I'm asking you to think about is how many brothers and sisters in our world, let alone our families and congregations, are separated by boundary lines seemingly defined by geography on a map, but actually forged by a long-standing dispute, a perpetuated slight, or an ongoing grudge. Think of North and South Korea. Think of the generations of animosity fueling the violence in the Middle East. Think of the ongoing genocide in places like Darfur, Sudan. And let's think closer to home. Think of the racial divide. The racial divide that despite the work of emancipation, despite the work of desegregation, despite the work of the civil rights movement, the racial divide in our country that somehow seems wider than it has ever been before our arguments over whether black lives or all lives matter, our arguments, the perpetual tensions and, and persecution we witness between Jews and Christians and Muslims, all of, these, all of the militancy and entrenchment of positions to these days related to gender, all of these issues, all of them are never about what's happened in this exact moment. All of them reflect The building up of frustration and resentment over generations. And what the Bible, I think, reveals to us today is that this cycle of hatred and violence that we know all too well, that we witness in our world, it all comes back to, it all starts with unresolved conflict within a family. Our inability and our unwillingness to practice forgiveness in our relationships. Now about this time, if you're tracking with me or if your brain's like mine, your wall is starting to come up, right? Talk about the Super Bowl, that was more fun. (laughs) You're sitting there and if you're like me and I'm not preaching at you, I'm sitting there with you. I'm right there next to my son. We can all, right? Right now as we're hearing this, we all are saying, yeah, but I can make a case for you for having been deeply disappointed and unjustly treated in some way. And it happened, yeah, you're right, it happened within the circle of my own family. You're right, it happened amongst those who I called my friends. We've all got our story, stories. And if we have them, right, and if they're in our minds right now, you're with me, we can strongly believe, not only remembering the story, we can also say, hey, wait a second, hold on. I have good and justifiable reason to be angry. I have good and justifiable reason to be angry about what happened. You don't know. You weren't there. You didn't see. You didn't hear. And more than that, I have a cause. I have an inability to reconcile. And We're thinking it, we're feeling it, even though we just considered in great detail, we've just gone through it, the far-reaching consequences of unresolved anger and hurt, it's still there. We've seen it, we've witnessed it through two brothers, through two nations, the hurt and the damage it can do not just to us, to those around us, but those who come after us, and yet we still say, why? Why should I forgive? How can I forgive? And I want to answer those two questions. I want to see how God's word answers those two questions. Why? Why? Why should I forgive? God, through his word, gives us two reasons. First, and you've heard this before, but it bears repeating and reflecting on. Why should we forgive? First, we should forgive others because we have been forgiven by God. In and through the life and death of Jesus Christ, the Lord has forgiven us. Jesus has forgiven us the affronts we commit out of ignorance. I mean, let's just start there. We, Jesus has forgiven us the, the, the mistakes that we make. We often, we, more often than we probably realize, offend people when we don't intend to or don't even realize it. Now, we, we try to partition that, right? We like to say, well, everybody makes mistakes. But beloved, our mistakes, our imperfections are a result of our separation from God. It's interesting to me, we say everybody makes mistakes as some kind of excuse, but we also say, well, God doesn't make mistakes. And that's right. Humanity wasn't originally created in the broken and flawed state we find ourselves in. Our imperfections, yes, even our mistakes, are a byproduct of our sin. And Jesus has forgiven us even the sins, the mistakes and affronts we're not even aware of. But Jesus, as you know, has also forgiven us of the times when we knowingly wrong others. When we knowingly wrong each other and thereby re- rebelliously offend him as father, as creator of all. The Lord in Christ, in fact, forgives us even when we directly and willfully snub and spite him as our God. Do you remember this picture of Jesus near the end of his life when he's approaching the city of Jerusalem? Jerusalem? He's coming to the city. He knows he will be rejected. He knows he's going to be seriously, horribly wronged. He knows he's going to be forsaken by the very ones he came to save. And yet, if you remember the scene as Jesus comes upon Jerusalem, it's in his line of sight. The Bible tells us Jesus saw the city and wept over it. He wept over it. Jesus, more than anyone else, knew the judgment we all deserve but that did not keep him from seeking reconciliation with us. And with blood, sweat, and yes, tears, Jesus offers us that forgiveness from the cross. It begins as he comes into Jerusalem with his tears, and it ends with him literally on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. Such forgiveness, if we forget, is a gift. And like all God's good gifts, what is given is meant to be shared. Beloved, when we refuse to share, when we refuse to forgive, understand we are returning God's gift back to him. This is what Jesus means, by the way, in the Gospels, when he repeatedly says, if you do not forgive others, Their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. You see, by practicing this kind of return policy in not forgiving others, we are rejecting or forsaking our own forgiveness because we are not laying claim or relying upon that gift. We forgive. Why? Because we have been forgiven by God. And we forgive. We should forgive because forgiveness reflects the character of God. We say it again and again, but we got to let it sink in. You and I, all of us, we are created in the image of God. And the Lord's desire, having created us in his image, the Lord's desire is for us as his children to represent him, to reflect his character. And that means we reflect his character through our forgiveness of others. Think about it. One of the primary, if not the assertion about our faith in Christ We talk about distinctives among religions. One of the primary, if not the assertion about our faith in Christ, our testimony about who Jesus is has to do with forgiveness. If we refuse, if we can't model forgiveness as the people of God, how can we honestly and rightly claim to follow to represent Jesus to others, to the world? The truth is we can't. We won't, because when we choose not to forgive, unforgiveness, and we've looked at this in Obadiah, unforgiveness is rooted in pride. The choice not to forgive is about representing myself, not representing God, not representing Christ. The choice not to forgive is about representing myself, my pain, my hurt, my anger, over and above reflecting the character of God. God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness. Oh, we're going deep now. And, beloved, let's tell the truth. Let's look into the mirror of Christ and see and not look away because the thing is, too many of us allow our identity to be defined by our pain. Too many of us allow our identity to be defined by our pain. My, my friends, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, your identity is not in what you have suffered. Your identity is in the one who saves you, who redeems all suffering. A lot of us, right? We use our anger. We use our hurts to sustain us. I'm angry, therefore I am. no. Beloved, we are not sustained by our wounds and our rage. My friends, we are consumed by our wounds and our rage. We are sustained by the wounds of the one who forgives us. We are sustained not by the power of God's wrath, but out of his grace. We have a powerful Example of why we should forgive is reflecting the character of God, the person of Christ, in one of the early voices of the church. It's a man who you might remember named Stephen. And Stephen in the book of Acts has just spoken to a group of his brothers and sisters, his people, Jews. He's talked to them about Jesus and how do they respond if you don't remember this story. They do not respond well and that's an understatement. They respond in anger. They respond out of resentment. They respond with hate. The crowd forcefully removes Stephen from the city. They pick up stones and began stoning him to death for his faith in Jesus. Now in this scene in the book of Acts, in that moment, Stephen could have just looked at his accusers and executioners and shouted, you just wait, you're going to get yours. You just wait. The day of the Lord is coming, my friends, and then you got another thing. Another thing coming. But if you know this story, as the stones pummeled his body, this is what he said Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He reflected the character of Christ. When we don't forgive, when we refuse to forgive, we will seek to avenge ourselves. And when we take vengeance into our own hands, understand this when we take vengeance into our own hands, we are biting the apple all over again. We presume wrongly to wield a right, a responsibility that only the Lord can handle, that only God can get right. Now, I know this is where we're pushing back a little bit, but remember forgiveness does not make everything that happened okay. Forgiveness does not negate the consequences of what happened. Those consequences have to play out. Forgiveness just acknowledges, it leaves those consequences in the Lord's hands. Vengeance doesn't resolve anything. It only makes things worse. Vengeance always, always ends badly. It leads always not to greater good, but to even greater wrongs. In contrast to Stephen, who we just talked about, once again, remember Edom. Edom's unwillingness to forgive fueled their arrogance to exact justice themselves. Driven by vengeance, Edom first refused to help as the Babylonians attacked Judah. But their vengeance did not stop there. No, their hatred, their wounded pride led the Edomites to slander and cheer as the city of Jerusalem burned. Their hatred drove them to justify taking advantage of and even exploiting the suffering of Judah. My friends, this is a picture of what we can become. This is a picture for some of us of what we are becoming. But this is not a picture of who we are in Christ, of the image of God in us. Through Jesus, the Lord has forgiven us so we can forgive each other. And when we forgive, we reflect the character of God in Christ to the world. Why should we forgive? Because the consequences are too high not to. Why should we forgive? But how? How? How do we forgive? How? The first thing we always need to remember is we can't forgive apart from God's grace. We can't. We won't. It's too hard. It's too painful. We try to do it in our own strength and we think, oh yeah, I'm good, I'm over it. You're not. It's, it's, a, it's a supernatural thing, this forgiveness. Because when we get wounded, when we get hurt, when we get betrayed, that wound, that pain is like shattered glass. You know, you ever shattered glass and you stepped on it or you got it in your hand, you got it in your skin? Shattered glass, it's there's too many little shards lodged in our skin that we can miss. There's so many of those little shards that can penetrate so deep. Oh, we get the big pieces, but it's the stuff we can't see. It's the stuff we can't get out. We need the grace of God. You need to hear that this morning because if you walk away today and think it's just about you pulling up your bootstraps and just get sucking it up and forgiving, you got it all wrong. You're going to just end up even angrier and more frustrated because forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us isn't about doing this in our strength, it's even not about doing it out of our will. It's only possible, it can only be done through His strength. His will at work in us. And one of the the biggest ways of understanding this is recognize that when God calls us to forgive as we have been forgiven, he calls us not to do it alone. Jesus walks with us. Jesus is a part of that space of our anger, of our hurt. Jesus is part of that conversation we keep having in our heads with that person who we can't talk to, we won't talk to. Jesus is with us when we actually face that person, when we sit down, We are not alone. And that means how should we forgive? It begins as everything does. It begins as always with prayer. It begins with prayer. Interesting thing, we talked about Jesus and Stephen. Jesus and Stephen both prayed to God as the starting point of their forgiveness. Notice that. By the grace of God, forgiveness starts by giving it to God. Giving God our pain, giving God our hurt, whatever it is, but more importantly, giving God that person, that people group, whoever they are, giving them to God. It's about putting that person in God's hands, in God's love and mercy, even if you have no love or mercy in your heart for them. You see, it starts with prayer, with engaging God, Because asking God to forgive becomes our means of being able to forgive. Sometimes the starting point of forgiveness is saying, I can't forgive them, I won't forgive them, but God, I ask you to forgive them. And I promise you, I promise you from personal experience, if you put not just your pain and your anger and your resentment, whatever it is, but that person in God's hand, you will come to a place where you won't just ask God to forgive them. But God moving in you, you will forgive them. It always begins with prayer, by turning to God, relying on the grace of God. But the other important aspect of how we forgive is recognizing that forgiveness begins by turning to God, but eventually forgiveness leads us to take a step toward that person. And let's be clear, Often ours is the first step. And this is where I lose everybody. Ah, See, I knew it. Bait and switch, man. I knew it. I got suckered into this. This is bogus, man. Turn to God and then I got to take the first step. They should be taking the first step towards me. You see, you got this all wrong. You don't understand. I've got no, they should be coming and knocking on my door. Take the first step. See, I knew what this God was all about. This stinks. I hear you. I hear you. If you sit here this morning and you hear that, that forgiveness begins by turning to God, but eventually forgiveness leads us to taking a step towards that person, and it is more often than not the first step. If you resist and resent that first step, this is why it is so important we remember And remind each other. This is why we have a prayer of confession and assurance of forgiveness as part of our service every week. If you resist or resent taking that first step, we've got to remember, we've got to remind each other how God in Christ made the first step toward us. Even as we hurt, even as we offended, even as we rejected him, the Lord stepped out. Jesus stepped up and paid the price for our offenses Once again, I know the argument's going on in your head. Remember, forgiveness doesn't negate the consequences. But here it is. Forgiveness isn't contingent upon the consequences. We messed up God's perfect world. We hurt each other, and God in Christ said, I'll take responsibility for the cleanup. I'll make it right. And so in the same way, by the grace of God, we offer forgiveness even if it's not requested or acknowledged. Forgiveness once again doesn't mean we have to we have to forget what happened or we have to say it doesn't matter. No, forgiveness is saying to the other person, I will not seek retaliation. I will not hurt back. So putting this together, what does this look like? How to forgive? If you have someone in your life who's willing to be forgiven, it needs to be a face-to-face conversation. You need to look that person in the eye. Do you remember how Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter betrayed Jesus, denied him three times? Do you remember that? Do you, I, I, I might remember my Bible incorrectly, but after Jesus was resurrected, did Jesus send Peter a text to tell him everything was okay? Did he drop him an email? Did he say, hey, Andrew, tell Peter we're good, it's all good, we're cool. No, Jesus met Peter face to face. Even more than that, if you remember this story, Jesus prepared a meal and invited him into to his table. Right, for many of us, I, I wanna encourage you, if you have someone that you can talk to face to face the, to, by the grace of God, consider inviting them into your space, making a meal and inviting them to your table. You're like, wait, they should be cooking for me, right? But Jesus prepares the meal. Jesus invites Peter to his table and forgives him. And if you remember that story, you remember it first. Peter isn't exactly acknowledging he needs to be forgiven. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jacob and Esau's story in many ways revolves around a table And yet Jesus comes back to that table when he talks to us about forgiveness. If that person is someone who's willing to sit with you, it needs to be face-to-face. And I want to encourage you to do it over a meal. To do it in the space of of your home, your hospitality. But what if they're deceased? And that's a real problem for some of us. What if the unforgiveness in our lives, our families has gone on for so long, that person is no longer with us because they went home to the Lord a long time ago. Or if we're still holding on to our anger, we think they might be somewhere else. Right? How do we forgive someone who isn't here? Write a letter. It's not silly. Write a letter. Write a letter to that person. Remember, this is first and foremost about you giving this person to God. Write it a letter. Don't just say, oh, I can do it in my head. Write it. Have that conversation. Write that letter, seal that letter, lock it in a drawer, send it to someone you trust, tell them to burn it when they get it or bury it, but write a letter, have that conversation. And again, remember when you're writing that letter, having that conversation, you're not alone. Christ is with you. What if the person that you need to forgive is unwilling to be forgiven? Maybe you show up and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you're gonna forgive me? No, you got it all wrong. I need to forgive you. You you, you have a misunderstanding here. I don't need your forgiveness, you need mine. What if it's a situation where the person, because of that, is unsafe? It's It's not a place that's safe for you. You can't sit down with that person. They're unwilling, it's unsafe, and that's a real possibility too. You can still forgive that person. If you can't meet with that person for whatever reason, then have someone be your proxy for that person. A family member, a friend, and say, I need you to be this person for me. I need to say what I need to say to them and I can't say it to them, but I can say it to you and I need to say it to you and let them be that person for you. You, Some of you may think this is silly. It's not silly. If you think you just do it all in your head, it ain't gonna happen. It's interesting again, back to Jesus and Stephen, they didn't pray silently in their heads, they spoke out loud. Jesus could have easily said, I'm saying, Father, forgive them, I know not what they do in my head right now. He says it out loud so someone can hear it Stephen could have said in his head, he said it out loud, we have to take that first step. I mentioned in the announcements that we're about to enter into this season of the church known as Lent, and again, some of you are familiar with this, but for those of you who are not, Lent is a 40-day journey, not counting the Sundays. It's a 40-day journey from Ash Wednesday to Easter, and it's, it's been in the church for centuries, not all traditions, but many, a season for reorientation. A time for being intentional about going deeper in our relationship with God. And this is not to imply that we shouldn't always aspire for that, but it's sort of like this. If time goes by and nothing else has happened in your relationship with God, you try to set aside this time, if no other time, to really be intentional about going deeper in your relationship with God. If you think about it, 40 days, and if you add in the Sundays especially to those, that 40, it equates to about six weeks. And what I want you to associate with this tradition in the church is one of our pearls of wisdom that it takes about four to six weeks to change a habit. And now you kind of understand what this season has been about in the church, letting God change our habits, our rhythms. And traditionally, the way this has been done in the church, you might have grown up with this, might have heard it, is that it's about either giving something up or taking something on. We give something up as a way of creating more space to reflect, to go deeper in that place that God wants us to focus, or we take something on. We take on something that we want to become part of our relationship, part of our practice, our rhythm in our relationship with God. I want to invite us as a community as Lent is upon us. This season, I want to invite all of us to do both. I want to invite you with me during these next 40 days to give up your anger your resentments, your pain, and to take on, to practice forgiveness toward others. And once again, if you're willing to take that journey with Jesus, remember you're not alone. Remember, Lent's all about following Christ. Remember again, as I've told you, this is about first and foremost being committed to prayer. And I'm going to tell you right now, and I've learned this from experience, it begins with asking God, saying, God, putting that person, those persons in, in God's hands and saying, God, forgive them. But it's also, and if you don't, don't worry. God will tell you anyway. It's asking God to reveal where resentment, envy, pride, bitterness, anger lingers in your life. Some of you here today through this sermon, you've already got someone in your head, a person, a people group. Others of you are like, I'm good, man. I'm, re- I'm really, I'm serious. I'm I'm awesome. I'm gonna tell you, if you engage in this journey, you might be surprised where all of a sudden God rises up that shard of glass you had no idea was there. And then the rest of you who say, well, I know who that is, I'll deal with this and then I'll be done, don't also be shocked if suddenly you think you've got everything and God says, oh wait, there's this other piece that you forgot about. It can go either way, it can go both ways. I'm looking at some of you, and you know, that's one of the hardest things about preaching is making eye contact, because you got to see how people are responding, or not. <laughs> and, and you have a look on your faces that I, I, I recognize from my own family. You know, in, in my family, my extended family, when stuff comes up that we don't like normally talk about, you know, stuff comes up that's kind of like taboo, people in my family get a look on their face, and there's a, there's a, a description for that look, it's don't go there. Okay, I hear you, but you need to stop talking now because if you don't, we're gonna have more anger and resentment between us. And I'm looking at some of you and I'm seeing a little bit of, don't go there. I understand. I got anger, I got pain, I got resentment too. And when our anger, our pain, our resentment gets touched, it wells up in us, yeah. We don't think we can handle it. And we say, don't go there. But the good news, the good news is Jesus is the one who comes into this world, into our lives, into our divided hearts and says, no, let's go there. Let's go there together. I'll lead, you just follow. So as you, with me, maybe now, maybe later, feel the heat and simmer of your unresolved anger As you reflect and you find, much to your surprise, or maybe not, that you're leaning on your hurts rather than letting them go. As you suddenly become sensitive and notice that more and more the world around us encourages us to have a chip on our shoulder. The world cheers us on to be mad as hell and to take matters into our own hands. Remember. Remember and reflect. Remember and do not forget the story of Jacob and Esau. Remember, and don't Forget the net effect of a 1,400-year-old grudge between two brothers. Remember and don't ever forget how the people of Edom literally disappeared from the face of the earth because they were consumed by their own unrelenting resentment, their presumption to sit in judgment, and their pursuit of vengeance against Israel. And when you recoil in shock and awe at remembering this carnage, at remembering this scene, and seeing a bit of yourself in the picture, look to Christ. Let us see Jesus. Let us hear Jesus as he offers us peace, not like the world gives. Let us listen to Jesus as he promises to set us free. Let us follow Jesus as he nails all our grudges, all those slights, all those hurts to the cross and puts them to death. Let us forgive as the Lord has forgiven us, as the Lord keeps forgiving us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen.